Our scripture reading this morning is uh, slightly modified from what you see in the worship folder. Uh, I'll be reading from Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14, and then 19, verses 13 through 15. And I believe the correct verses will be up on the screen. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always seek the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Then the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here as well at Redeemers. Good to see you. Happy Mother's Day to you all. Uh, we are headed into a period of transition as a church, and so for the last few weeks we've been doing a bit uh, of just preparation for that. You could say we're, we're going to be in the middle of a minor uh, mod remodel of our church, if you want to say. And so I'm trying to show you the blueprints and, and to try to get you ready for what we think um, is going to be asked of us as we meet God in the places where we think he's going to be leading us as a church. So. Uh, we've talked about in the last couple of weeks that we need to have a readiness, a spirit-given readiness to serve, to realize that we're here not for ourselves but for others. And so uh, we, we, though we are free from all, become slaves to all so that we might win them for the gospel. Uh, we talked last week about the need to be radically generous. Um, we, we really do uh, and are going to be calling uh, you know, us as a church to that in the months and, and weeks to come. And, and then this morning, we want to see uh, that we, I want to take a moment, we've not really done this in the history, in the 10 years of our church, but we want to recommit ourselves to the task of reaching our children 
and the children of this city for the gospel. Now today's Mother's Day. What a joy, right? I even wore my pink um, because that's appropriate. Uh, but I don't want to talk to. Uh, I don't want to talk about mothers uh, so much as I want to talk about their children. Uh, as Ashley's already said, the church is a mother. The Protestant reformers would say. Uh, they said things like, uh, you, you can't have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother. That's the way they put it. And so uh, the work of the church is the work of a mother. And that really is what these two scenes here put, you know, chapter two, chapter, you know, one in each chapter here in Matthew 18 and 19 is what they really point us to. That there's a work that we must do as a people gathered together as a community of people, as a church, that really is parallel to the work that obviously we celebrate today. With mothers, And so if you're a Christian, you are a child of the church. And if you're a part of the church, then no matter where you are in your own journey of motherhood, uh, you are called to be a part of this mothering work the church does towards the children in its midst. Okay? And so here's what we see. Three things from this text. We want to we wanna really focus, if you look down at chapter 19, verse 14, really we're going to be executing that one verse using Matthew 18 as well. And Jesus says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So we want to ask three questions of, of this text. First, uh, what does it mean to let the children come? Secondly, how is it that Jesus warns here, how is it that we can, in fact, hinder them from coming? And then thirdly, why is this so important? What's the gospel motivation for uh, the work that, that Jesus really calls us to here? So uh, we're going to look at those three things, okay? What does it mean for us, as Jesus says, to let the children come? How is it that we can uh, become a hindrance and get in the way? And then thirdly, what is our gospel motivation in making sure we don't do that? So, uh, let's start. And let's look here at what Jesus says. Let the children come to me. That's the focus this morning. So what does that practically mean for us? And the first thing uh, is that we have to answer the question, looking particularly in chapter 18, if you look there with me, in verse uh, 5, for example, and then on down in verse 10 and so forth. Who are these little ones that Jesus refers to here? Uh, it, so there's a reference to children, of course, because the whole thing is occasioned by him calling a child into its, his midst and doing this. But there's a, a broader application, I think, of this. And the Greek word there, if you look where it says little ones there in verse 5 and again in verse 10, the Greek word, it's fascinating, literally is the word micro. It's just the micro ones. Uh, the, the, those that are little. It changes from the Greek word that specifically refers to a child to this more general word. And most of the commentators say that that means that Jesus is broadening the application beyond just children to all of those who are childlike. So, for example, those that are in a position of weakness and need, those with special needs maybe, or the socially marginalized, or even the elderly. That the church should show special care and attention to those who are little in the eyes of the world. And I want to keep that in mind as we talk through this text, but also keep us focused on children, which is clearly the broader context of this passage, because the word describes what life is like for a child. And you don't have to be a child to experience that. There are people in all kinds of stages of life that experience life the way that a child does. It's hard to be little in this world. That's really what this is pointing to. And so we are to be a people who champion the cause of those who are little in the world, who come to their aid for the sake of justice and mercy. Now, sometimes ministry to little ones, uh, to teenagers and, and children especially, can feel like what Jesus describes beginning in verses 12 through 14 there. This leaving the 99 in search of, of the one. Uh, that's the image Jesus uses. We're probably familiar with, more familiar with Luke 15. 
which is a part of that whole cluster of par parables there in Luke 15 that, that also include the parable of the prodigal son. There in Luke 15, Jesus is leaving heaven to go in search of sinners. Here, what he's describing for us is this intentional ministry for us to those who are little, to the outsider, to those who are the most insignificant. And the 99 and the 1 captures the idea of choosing efficiency, you know, and in, excuse me, choosing inefficiency and ineffectiveness in the way we do ministry, at least by worldly standards. There's this huge investment of time and energy for very little return on investment, but it's worth it because it's God's heart. That's what he's teaching. See what I'm saying? Verse 13, it's not the will of the Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's the teaching. And so he says to them there in chapter 19, verse 13, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Now, what does it mean? What does that mean then? And there's a positive. We'll deal with the negative in the next, in the next little bit. But here positively, I want you to see what this means. It means that we are to clear away any obstacle, to make the path very clear, to make it easy for children to find themselves getting to Jesus. The disciples were blocking their way, right? They were running up to Jesus and the disciples were getting in the way and putting out their arms and not letting them come to him. And, and in Matthew, we don't get it. In one of the other Gospels, it says that Jesus was really indignant. Now, that's a really, you know, that's not, I mean, Jesus was ticked. It really upset him that the disciples would do this. And then he rebukes them. Here, he just goes straight to the rebuke. The disciples are blocking their way to him and Jesus says, stop getting in the way of the little children come to me. Stop getting in the way of what I'm doing in their lives. And so just for free, this doesn't have anything to do uh, with anything else this morning, but I just, you know, this is your, this is your, what the free part of the, the, the uh, service this morning. With parenting and, and everything else, so much of being Christ, a Christian is just staying out of the way of how God is working. You with me? I have some goals for my parenting and my kids. If you know me, you're probably not surprised to to learn that. There are probably too many. I think we have like, I have like eight. I came up with like 18, which is way too many, but regardless. So yes, we're prone to over-parenting. Just ask our children, they'll tell you that. But the very first one uh, that I wrote down on the piece of paper so many years ago is just stay out of the way of God's parenting with them. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is just get out of the way. But what does it look like? What does it look like, though, practically for us to, to heed the command of Jesus to to really make sure that the way is clear, that there are no obstacles, that there, it's an easy path for children uh, and teenagers in our church and in our city to get to Jesus. And I, just a couple things I would mention to you, uh, just by the way, and there's a lot of practical application in, in, in what I want to say this morning. But the first thing I think we have to be willing to do is we have to embrace messy. We just have to be willing to embrace messy. I'm getting on 20 years into parenting, and I've learned my number one uh, my number one probably lesson of parenting in these 20 years is don't buy anything nice until the kids, the kids are grown. Just don't do it. It's not worth it. Just don't do it. Why? Right? I mean, amen, parents. Are you with me? Just don't. Just, just let it. It's going to be okay. You're not going to have anything nice until you're in your 50s or 60s. And it's the children are, the children are what you're doing, not that other stuff. So to let the children come, you have to be okay with messy. Uh, one of my favorite parts... All the years ago that we worshipped at Trinity Presbyterian Church in, in uh, Lakeland, uh, is if you if, you know we came out of a very kind of older congregation. Our kids were about the only kids in the entire church, and we ended up there. And there are kids everywhere, and actually, and I just really, really just kind of couldn't believe it. Uh, but it was just it was an absolute disaster. It was so chaotic. 
It was noisy. Kids were playing Jenga in the corner during the service. I mean, it was just, it was just chaotic. That's kind of a hyperbole, but um, it actually did happen once, but only once. <laughs> but I mean, there were just kids hanging everywhere. It was loud, and I'd never experienced anything like that. And it was just really, really kind of disorienting, but, but beautiful at the same time. Um, but there, uh, one, one thing in particular, there was, there was uh, this, one, this one kid, his name was Will Davidson, and Will was a special needs kid who would, and, and his dad was the director of worship, so they sat in the front row. And I mean, to tell you, uh, Will would just belt stuff out in the middle of service. I mean, and, and it, was always, it was always at, you know, the, the time when it needed to be really quiet. And there goes Will just saying something, Aah! he's like going crazy. And, and nobody even responded. Like, it didn't even land on the church at all. It was like it was no big deal. The church just embraced his presence in the presence of all the kids. And it was just the most, it was the most beautiful thing. And so, if we're going to be a church that clears the way for little ones to come, then pepper spray might go off in the middle of the service. <laughs> and if the others are here, I don't mean to make light of that, but it might happen. I mean, we did have that thing where, like, this whole side of the church cleared out in the service. Because the kids are here, and we want them here, amen, right? Amen? That's what we want. It's going to be messy. Lots of kids, a lot of young families, a lot of new Christians or people on their way to becoming Christians is going to be a lot of mess. And this really is, in the history of the 10 years of this church, that we are a messy church. And it's largely due, I think, to success in what we've set out to do, to be a place where... Children and people young in the faith and people with little kids just come and bring their mess and we all just get to be, like Charlie B said, we get to be a mess together. Uh, and I've seen that be hard for people over the years. And so just a reminder that, that it's going to be a mess. The kingdom is full of kids. And kids are messy. And so we got to be willing to embrace the mess. Organizationally, we're going to be a mess. And, and, and we always want, because the kingdom is that way. And so as, even as we try to organize ourselves. And one of the things we're, we're trying to do is we're trying to become, we realize there's a transition happening to us becoming more of a resourcing church uh, for the sake of the churches we want to plant. And that means we have to kind of organize ourselves a little better, but I hope we never organize ourselves out of the mess because if we do that, we're organizing ourselves out of the flow of the kingdom. We've got to embrace the mess. But not only do we embrace the mess, the second thing we got to do is we got to bear the cost. And by that, I mean this idea that Ministry like this means leaving the 99 and going after the one. And, I, and, and you can just get a picture of that. I think you can get that in your imagination, right? Let me give you one example of the way that's worked in our church. Is, uh, Kathleen Updike, who's a dear friend of ours, uh, and many of you know Justice, her, her son. And when they were starting to come, we realized we really had to uh, restructure the way that we did children's ministry just for the sake of him. And so whereas typically um, we would have one helper her six or seven children, what Ashley was doing children's ministry at the time, was she uh, organized the Justice League, which was a group of about uh, six or seven teenage boys in our church. Uh, and, and the job, we had six, probably six volunteers that their one job was to take care of justice when it came to church. That's not a very efficient use of resources, but it's absolutely necessary for kingdom work. And you have to embrace the cost like that to do this, to make sure that the little children come. And that's what Jesus says. Let the children come to me. Embrace their messiness. Count, bear the cost of what that means. And get out of the way and let me do what I want to do. But, so that's what we're focusing on. Verse 14. Let the children come to me. 
and do not hinder them. So we said there's a positive and there's a negative. So positively, Jesus says, just get out of the way. Let them come. Let the way God is working unfold. You know, just stay out of the way of what I'm trying to do. But negatively, he, he warns, uh, be careful that you don't start putting stumbling blocks in their way. Don't hinder them, he says. Don't, don't discourage them. Don't make it hard for them. And so it begins, I think, with what you see here in verse 10 of chapter 18, this hard attitude that he warns of when he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And that word despise is really important. It's, it's all over the place in the scriptures. It means to disregard or to make little of something. It is to say, you know, that's not important. So to despise means you look down on someone else because you think of yourself as being better or more important than they are. And it's easy for adults to do that with children. It's easy for insiders in the church to do that with outsiders. It's easy for Christians to do that with sinners. And Jesus says, be careful. Don't look at someone who is weaker than you or more sinful than you or just caught or whatever the case might be. Don't look at them and say, you know what? You're not important. You don't matter as much as I do. Because if you allow yourself to begin to despise the little ones like that, what he teaches here is that you will eventually begin to put obstacles in their way. And so, you know, he says, don't hinder them. We're going to get to that, what, what exactly that means in just a minute. But I would just say to you, raising kids in the faith is hard enough in this culture. Amen? You with me? I mean, that's a hard thing. It's a hard deal. And so the path we put our kids on to get them to Jesus should be straight and clear. What he's saying is don't make it an obstacle course. That's what Jesus is saying, you know. I've seen churches do this. A church can make it hard for their children to come to faith. They can turn, they can turn uh, church for children into an American ninja obstacle course. And that, that's, literally, that's literally what he's saying here. Look at the language. Verse 6, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, uh, the word is actually stumble, not sin. He says, so whoever, whoever is the cause of their stumbling, I'm not sure why the ESV translates it like that. But it's the word scandalon. It refers to a trap or an offense, something that damages the reputation of Christianity for the person. And that language even carries over into verse 7. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling blocks come. So that's that same word, that idea of scandalon, a scandal, something that causes you know, people to trip over and not get to where they're trying to go. So getting through the world as a Christian is like going through that American Ninja obstacle course. It's hard enough, and we should do everything we can to remove all the obstacles for our kids. And instead, too often, we're responsible for putting more obstacles in their way. And it's a real danger. I mean, he says some strong things here. Are you with me? How do we do that? Well, we do it in a number of ways. A person... You just go through some scenarios. A person who is a quote-unquote sinner, and they know it and everybody else knows it, is a little one. And sometimes someone caught in sin comes into the church, and they experience people being judgmental. And because of that, because of what they experience uh, through people, they assume God is like that. And so they walk away, and they never come back, and they walk away from God and never come back. That's being a stumbling block. That's getting in the way of God's mercy towards that person. You're hindering them. From experiencing grace or just another scenario if we ever if we ever as a, as a church communicate to someone there's no place for you here whether inadvertently or on purpose or whether it's due to their let me see what I put here whether it's due to their sin or their age or their ethnicity or whatever the case might be we are putting a stumbling block in their way if we do that I mean, it's hard it's, 
You know, I, I've been told, and this is something we have to own. I mean, this church can be a hard place for people who don't look like us. We need to fix that. There's, you know, a couple of other things. You know, third, if we, it, let me see, if somebody has hurt you and, and because you're hurt, you refuse to forgive them. If you discourage them with your criticism and your unforgiveness, you're keeping them from coming to Jesus for mercy. Right? You're making their journey to grace and forgiveness unnecessarily difficult. And that's what Jesus wants about here. Or one of the chief sins of the church, and I've not been in this for too long, 20 years, I guess, maybe something like that, but one of the chief sins of the church. And, and by the way, in the years of serving the church as a younger man, now transitioning to serving the church as a, uh, you'll get mad at me if I say older man, I'm not there yet, but I'm kind of in that liminal stage where I'm no longer the young man, but not quite the old man. But as a young man serving the church, one of the chief sins is for the older members and older generations to refuse to pass off leadership to the younger generations. And that the older people hold on and demand the younger people serve them. And I, I'm telling you, I've been in this city, it is, I've watched it kill churches. And there's a graphic warning here in chapter 18, verse 6 and 7. Where Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Holy smokes. I mean, I, that, that means what it says, by the way. There's no need for me to try to explain it except to say two things. And the first would be this, that through sin or sheer carelessness, what it teaches me there is that I can be the cause of sin in others. So I am commanded, and you are too, to be vigilant with my own sin. Not just for my sake, but for your sake too. Beyond that, with my words and personality and influence, because we have great power in one another's lives for good or evil. Moms, your idolatry and sin will have tremendous impact on your kids. Happy Mother's Day, right? And that's um, and I don't say that to discourage you or frighten you. God's grace is sufficient for every weakness. Do you believe that? I say it to call you to decisive action to be rid of sin. Which is what Jesus calls you to here in the, in the verses that we brought back in because I didn't want to lose this. To look what he says to do there. To cut off a hand, to gouge out an eye, to do whatever you have to do. Not only for your own sake, but as an act of love. You do those things as an act of love because if we are lackadaisical about our sin, we are not only endangering ourselves, we're endangering others and those we love the most. That's Jesus' teaching. But not only that, through carelessness or, or otherwise, I can be the cause of sin in others, but really what we're being taught here is the greatness of the Father's heart for these little ones we're speaking of. This is a big deal. He says, if you cause one of them to stumble, you might as well tie a rope around your neck and drop a big, heavy rock that it just that it sends you right to the bottom of the, of the ocean. And, and it's because God's heart is so great. Verse 10, I tell you in heaven, their angels, the angels of these little ones, always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. It's a really cryptic statement. And be careful of creating an entire systematic theology out of that verse. We're not really sure what Jesus means there, but it's probably something like this, that the angels that are in charge of watching over what we would call the little ones always have the Father's face. They have top priority with God because they're the ones that are so precious. That's what he's saying. Now let me apply this specifically to the children, remembering the broader context of these two 
chapters. What does this mean for us as a church to let the children come and make sure we don't hinder them? I want to just make three comments. The first is that we have to have an enduring commitment to pass on the faith to the next generation. It's a family meeting, okay? If you're here, and I mean, we're re we really are having a family meeting. We're talking about things that really relate to us. This is a little different than what we normally do, but I think we need to take the time to do this to say and remind you, we have a, a multi-generational vision for ministry in Winter Haven. We have a 50-year vision for what we'd like to see Winter God do through this church in Winter Haven and Polk County. And that means that a lot of the stuff that we are praying God will do in our city, in our county, it will be our children and our grandchildren that will see the answers to those prayers. In 40 years, I'll be in my 80s. If I'm still up here doing this, we're in big trouble. Can I tell you that? We're in big trouble. Big trouble. We all know the statistics. Our young people are leaving the church. And so one of our primary mission fields has to be our kids. The secular world we live in is no longer hospitable to our, to our faith. We have to be more intentional because of that. More intentional and more diligent than ever before as families and as a church family. You know, Ashley and I... Today is portending a whole lot of stuff for us. We're about to start sending our kids away to college next year. And I'll tell you, one of the things we talk about, one of the things we pray for, we want them to come back. Amen? I mean, we, we want uh, Redeemer to not just be their parents' church. We want it to be their church. A church for the next generation. A church they come back to and they make it their own. So our 50-year plan for ministry includes a strategy for handing the baton of leadership to the next generation when the time comes. And we have to be absolutely enduringly committed to passing the faith to the next generation. Which means, secondly, we have to prioritize ministry to young families and teenagers and children. And you've heard us say that one of our goals is to grow younger. Uh, and we don't want to alienate anyone in saying that. That doesn't mean that if... Uh, your kids are grown and gone, you're irrelevant, you don't matter, okay? In, in trying to not despise younger generations, we can't begin to despise the older ones. We, are, we feel urgency and, and, com, and compulsion because of the analytics that are being done, that churches in America are aging. There are not enough, do you know this, there are not enough young men going into ministry to replace the men retiring from pastorates. Churches are closing all over the, the, the country because they can't find people to replace the pastors that are retiring. You, this, is gonna, this floored us when we learned this, and it's really one of the things that's driving us, and you may not be aware. The PCA, the, the denomination that we are part of, is the oldest Protestant denomination in the country. Not like we've been around the longest. By the median age is the highest of all Protestant denominations in the entire country. The median age of our denomination is 59 years old. The median age of the country is 46. And so I'm asking those of you who are longer in the faith, I know what I'm doing. I'm saying we have to serve those coming behind us and to say this isn't about us and to put you know, our joy in seeing the next generation embrace the faith and to know that it might mean that, that my enjoyment might become less. Uh, but that's okay unless your enjoyment of church was coming from having a church that you like instead of being a part of a church that was reaching other people. Someone, someone has to defer to someone else. And the more mature always defer to the less mature. The older saints should always defer to the younger generations. The great joy of our hearts shouldn't be just to be able to sing the songs that we like, but to watch our kids singing about the faith with joy. And so we gotta prioritize ministry because we're, we have a commitment to pass on the faith to the next generation prioritizing ministry, and then therefore we have to make ministry forms accessible to kids and teenagers. We have to be really careful in our love for doctrine that we speak in a way that isn't too high for 
and for kids. Uh, Tim Rice, the pastor of Trinity, talks about his third grade test, and he says, if, I'm t if I can't, if I, if I feel like this, what I'm saying is not accessible to a third grader, I gotta go back and I gotta do it again. Uh, we gotta sing songs the kids like to sing that maybe we adults don't like to sing all that much. We gotta do service times at times when families with children can make it. We have to, we have to create ministry forms that are accessible to these little ones that, that Jesus is referring to here because it's, otherwise we're creating hindrances. And there are great warnings about that. And so a church that doesn't prioritize the young and the younger faith a church that isn't messy or that's too serious and not playful, it's not a healthy church. The gospel propels us towards this kind of ministry, that's our, and that's our last point. So look here with me again. What is, what is the gospel motivation for some of these things I've been talking about? And here's what I would say to you is, the gospel is a move towards humility. And therefore, the Christian life should be characterized by humility. Well, here's what the gospel says. The gospel of Jesus says, You are a little one, and Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, left the halls of heaven to come in search of you. That's the glorious gospel that the Most High came down. He suffered and he died for our sins and was raised on the third day. And so Christianity is not about striving to ascend. You don't have to claw your way up to God. Jesus Christ came down. Religion demands your effort. The gospel proclaims God's humility. I mean, the incarnation is all about humility, right? A, 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 you know, a stable, a manger, shepherds, Bethlehem, this tiny little city in the middle of nowhere. All of it screams humility because the coming of God into the world was the great act of humility by which he was repairing all of the damage that our pride and sin had done. And so you don't save you through your strength. God saves you through his humility. So if the whole move of the gospel is towards humility, uh, then a couple of things. Then the only way to get into the kingdom, as Jesus teaches here, is through humility. So we get into the kingdom through humility. Uh, we went to the Holy Land about a month and a half ago now, and we went to the Church of the, 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 church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, which is uh, built over top of the, the, the grotto where they believe that uh, Jesus was born, regardless of your opinions about that. It is this really beautiful church. But in order to, I wish I had a picture. I should put a picture up here. But uh, there's only one way into the church. And, uh, and Timos Roberts was with, was with us. And Timos is 6'11 and about 370 pounds. And uh, the only way to get into this church, you have to go through the door of humility. That's what it's called. And it's about four feet by two feet. <laughs> Now, isn't that fun? Think about 6'11", 370, trying to get through that thing. He made it somehow. We greased him up, I guess, or something. But you have to, you, you literally, to get into this church, you literally have to, you have to, uh, you know, you have to bend down. You almost have to get on your knees, and you have to, you know, bring yourself down to get through this tiny door. And it's so fitting, isn't it? In Matthew 19, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. In chapter 18, he says that the only way to get into the kingdom of heaven is to look there, verse 2 and 3, humble yourself, turn and humble yourself and become like a little child. One translation says, and I love it, there are no grown-ups in heaven. Boys like that. Because in life, there's this natural progression of becoming less childlike in the interest of moving into adulthood. And that usually means being more independent and less dependent upon others. It's a very important part of growing up. Children, children need people to take care of them. Uh, they're not ready to do life on their own. So growing into adulthood means that in some measure you learn how to take care of yourself without help from others. But Jesus is saying, here's the problem. In the spiritual life, the whole thing uh, that is just natural in the way we go about life, that whole thing has to be reversed. 
in order to get into the kingdom, you have to stop being so adult spiritually, and you have to turn, which is the word repent, and you have to become like a child again. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that sin, if you want to think about sin in this way, the one way you could talk about sin is sin is a child acting like they're an adult when they're not. And so to repent of sin means that you become less independent and more dependent, that you have to come to a place where you turn to God, you fall on your knees, you turn to God and you say, I can't do this by myself, I need help. Because it's not strength that gets you into the kingdom, it's need. And it's not your hard work that saves you, it's grace. And grace flows downhill. Grace flows off of the high peaks of pride and down into the valleys of humility. Grace goes to those who know they don't have what it takes. And so adults don't get in. Only children do. That's what Jesus says. Now, let me apply that. The application there would mean something like this. And the duty of a child is gratitude. I mean, what do, you, what, do we, what do we do or what do we think of a child who insists on being treated like an adult? What do you do, you tell me, with your kids when they take all of your generosity as a parent and sacrifice and not only don't say thank you, but they act like you owe them something? We know this is out of place. If you can't do life on your own, if you're dependent upon others to help, then your duty towards those people is gratitude. Listen, kids, say a thank you a thousand times today. Dads, you probably should amen that. Moms can't. It feels self-serving if they do. But like dads, like, I can't do that to mine. Or I can look at you and point. Say thank you a thousand times today to make up for all the times you don't. And then try to do it a thousand times every day. If you want to test, that's your job. That's your job today. If you want to test of your child likeness, it's gratitude. I mean, the further you get into grace... Do you feel more and more and more gratitude, or is there more and more demand? Gratitude is childlike. Demand is childish. More gratitude, less demand. That's spiritual maturity. We get into the kingdom. But if you get into the kingdom through humility, let me just finish with this, then, then you live in the kingdom in humility. So the prompt for Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 18 is this question, verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus' answer is that greatness is humility and service. And humility is all about the way you think of yourself. Service is the way you think about your place in the community, and they're always connected. So let me just say this. this. This might come as a shock to you. It does to me too. But the person in this room right now at this moment who is potentially the farthest from the kingdom of heaven right now is me. Because what I do is so public. I'm the one doing all the talking for these 30 minutes or so. And it, it's so easy not to serve from where I'm standing. And so Jesus says, Matthew 20, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercised authority. But it should not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first must be your slave. So to be a leader means that you serve. Authority in the kingdom of heaven is not expressed through will, but through love. I was a pastor of a church, a large church in Orlando for one year during seminary, and uh, I'll never forget, it was really defining for me. One day I went into the uh, fellowship hall to get ready for a meeting I was having the next day, and the room wasn't set up. And so I began to stack the chairs, and then as I was doing this, one of the facilities people came in, and, and they got on to me, like, they, they seriously got on to me. They, you know, I got in trouble, like, I got called to the senior pastor's office, you know, and got in trouble for doing this, and he said, because pastors don't do that kind of work, they're too busy and important for that. And I just want to say that that's just wrong. 
there is a direct correlation, not an inverse correlation, between power and service in the kingdom. And the application is just, just Jesus doesn't say, notice, he doesn't say be humble. And you know why he doesn't say be humble? Because you can't do that. The moment you try to start being humble, you're moving further away from humility. <laughs> What's the command in verse 4? The command is humble yourself. And that's something different. You can't make yourself humble, but you can humble yourself. You can put yourself in humble places. And you can, and you can just... You can just content yourself to be there. Luke 14. In Luke 14, Jesus tells a parable to illustrate this. He says, if you were invited to a feast, he says, what you ought to do is you ought to intentionally seek out the lowest place and sit there. And just let your imagination run with that. But here's how I would finish this morning. We're all little ones spiritually. That's the teaching of the text. We're all little ones. And when you realize that, you don't have any trouble making room for other little ones. So let me just finish with this charge. About every week, 25% of our attendance here at Redeemer City is kids, fifth grade and under, 25%. If you add middle school and high school, that number goes to about 33%. So one out of every three souls in this room is 18 and, and over there is 18 years old or younger. And I just want to say, do you realize how unique that is? That's a really neat thing. I don't, I don't mention it as a boast. It's an incredible responsibility. And one of the things that we anticipate actually is an increase in that age group of people in our church in the coming months and years, which would mean we uh, would need to be even more ready. We would need more help. Not just having more bodies in classrooms so parents can get a break. We need an army of people who, when they see the kids leave this room in the middle of the service, see future generations of leaders and missionaries and church planters and godly businessmen and women and teachers in our, in our city and who want to be a part of forming those children into the, into the image bearers of God that they can be. Uh, I'm in ministry today in large part because of my Sunday school teacher when I was in fourth and fifth grade, Rick Van Cleef. What a strategic place God has for us. And yet, I'll be honest, one of the things we're dealing with is we have people coming off the schedule to serve in the children's ministry over there faster than we can add people. And it's a, real, it's a real problem. We need all hands on deck. We're scrambling. Right? If you, if, you want to, if you want to be where Jesus is on Sunday mornings, it's those classrooms over there. Isn't that what the scripture teaches? You're not missing out if you're not in here. Trust me. We record this, okay? You can listen to this later. You're not missing out if you're in this room. You're missing out if you're not over there. And so help us pray. Pray for Misty and her team. We need, to, we need to rally to that work because we sense that our energy is waning for that work. And that's why I just wanted to take a week and say we can't let that happen. We can't let – if our energy for shaping and forming the lives of the children and teenagers in this church begins to wane, it means we're losing our gospel footing. It means we're becoming too grown up. And that's the easiest way to step out of the flow of the power and the movement of God's kingdom. Jesus says, let the children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Oh God, make that true of us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Could we pray? So Father, thank you for the great privilege of mothering and of fathering. Whether it is children that have come from us, or spiritual children that you have given to us over the years, or whether it is through the ministry of the church that we've been able to do that work. We thank you. It is such a privilege. And so uh, we want to be found faithful by you in that work. Forgive us for uh, prioritizing our own 
comfort or our own desires ahead of making sure that the children that we've taken vows to are properly raised and nurtured in the faith. Renew our energy and our commitment. Seeing the gospel go forward, not just in our city, but in our own families, in our own church, to the next generation. Help us to gather our wits and to gather our courage to say, I'm going to be here uh, to, to see that great work because I know one day I won't be here and the faith needs to carry on. And so give us and our leaders great wisdom and energy, creativity and boldness towards those ends. Thank you that when we were little, you did not despise us. But that in order to save us, you became little yourself. To rescue us. May that be the great motivation of our hearts to go and do the same for others, that you might be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the one who humbled himself, becoming nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, becoming obedient even to death on the cross for our sins, has now been highly exalted and given a name that is above every name, that at his name every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is the Lord. He is seated in exaltation and glory. And the promise that comes with that is that whatever places of humility that he would send you to, uh, that can be scary, where you feel, I, maybe I'll be forgotten if I go there, you can be assured, not only will you not be forgotten, but all of his power is promised to you to come to bear upon you and your weakness as you serve him. Uh, he promises to be with you, and that is the promise of this benediction. And so, as he sends us now, at the end of our service, receive this benediction, and wherever he uh, sends you, he does not send you to go there alone, but to go with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Happy Mother's Day.